done? This is hope. On today's episode of According to Your Purpose, we have Tori Hope Peterson. Tori is a foster care mom, advocate, and a former foster kid herself. She was also Mrs. Universe, and she's even a speaker and an author. It's an awesome conversation. Here's my talk with Tori. Well, Tori, I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, for my listeners who aren't familiar with your story, why don't we just start at the beginning and you can kind of tell me from your childhood up until now, because you've had, you've had a lot happen to you. Yes. I was born to a single mom who grew up very, in, in just very difficult circumstances. She had experienced human trafficking, abuse. And so when I was three years old, I went into the foster care system due to a drug bust. And I did not want to go into the foster care system. I wanted to be with my mom. Um, I, cause you know, when you're living in dysfunction, when you're that young, you don't know that it's dysfunction and the foster care system did its job. I was reunified with my mom just months later. But then as I got older, my mom's mental Ill illness, it just got worse. And so I had to go into the foster care system again, uh, this time with my sister who's 10 years younger than me. And I actually thought it was a good thing. I felt like we were going to be escaping the abuse and the neglect and maybe we would have a family that would take care of us. But within a month of being in that home together, my sister and I were separated. And throughout my entire time in foster care, I moved throughout 12 foster homes. And I emancipated the day I turned 18. Um, it's because of community support, a lot of people pouring into me. I did have the chance to go to college. And now I do advocacy work for youth in foster care. And I get to equip and call out and empower the church to care for the orphan and the widow um, through a social media platform as well as national speaking. So I, ha I have to imagine that your scenario of going to college um, and, and you were Miss Universe, correct? Yeah, I, I won the title Mrs. Universe in 2021. Okay. So I have to imagine that that is not typical of, of the foster care um, child is that, is that the outcomes are typically not as, as good as they have been for you. How old were you when, when you went into foster care? So the first time I was three and then the second time I was 12, I went to a little kinship and then like I came back with my mom again, but I was like the foster care system was still heavily involved. And then I went out again, like into foster care, foster care, kinship, not involved when I was 13. You went to 12 homes after that, after the, your 13th birthday. So there was 11 homes that second half. And then there was one, the, the first half. What prevented you when you went through so many homes, what prevents a typical foster kid from being, I guess, adopted or, um, incorporated into a single family throughout there because i have to imagine that that many homes being placed in that many homes is tough especially for a kid it would be tough for an adult yeah i totally felt like people didn't want me like i was displaced a lot like i was just kind of thrown out but I know now that I was under a very specific and unique case plan. It was called a PPLA, which stands for Permanent Placement Living Arrangement. And like not a lot of states have it. So I grew up in Ohio and it's unique to Ohio. But basically what it meant was that the county, um, they did have full custody of me but my mom's rights were not terminated. So usually when a child enters into care, there are like only two options and that is they're reunified with their family or they go to kin um, or the, the parents' rights are terminated and then they are adopted by a foster family. And so I was like in this unique middle where my mom's rights were not terminated, but I was in full custody of the state. So my mom still had a lot of power and influence and say over my life. And so she did not want me to be adopted. And it is true. Like I, I wasn't an orphan. Um, I, I was in a way that my, my dad had passed away um, before 
I was born and there are different kinds of orphans. So there's, I was technically a paternal orphan and, you know, then there's like a, something called a social risk orphan, which means, you know, you uh, can't live with your biological parents due to financial circumstances, uh, social economic resources. And that was the case for me. And so I, my mom had a lot of say over my case. And when I was moving from home to home, what I saw was that a lot of people wanted to foster kids that were younger. And when I now I speak at like these big conferences, I used to take offense to that. Like I thought no one wanted me because I was older. But now I go to these big conferences and I teach and I listen to other speakers. And something that's kind of a rule in foster care is that you foster kids that are younger than your biological children. I didn't know that. Um, my husband and I haven't followed that rule, but it is like a rule of thumb. And then uh, another thing in the foster care system that's very prevalent is a, a large part in the foster care community is the infertility community because uh, when you go to adopt a, an infant it's a lot of money if you don't do it through the foster care system it can be upwards of fifty thousand dollars or more if you adopt through the foster care system you're paid a stipend and it doesn't cost you anything so a lot of parents are going into the foster care system to take in younger children and i just i was older does that frustrate you coming from that world yourself? Does 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 the idea of parents getting in specifically to adopt rather than I guess for the betterment of of the kid frustrate you? Um I think if I didn't know God and if I didn't know that he's good, it would frustrate me. Um, but I do see that he can work in our hearts and he can change them. I think that it is hard um, sometimes to see all these older kids um, yearn for a home. Like if you just Google America's kids belong or adopt us kids, you're likely not going to, you're not going to find babies on there. You're going to find older kids who are like literally begging people through these videos uh, to be a part of a family. And that's really sad. Um, and then if you look at the statistics on infant adoption, there are like over 2 million parents waiting to adopt infants. And so that, I wouldn't say that I'm like frustrated or I'm angry. I just think that I have to continue to talk about it because um, teenagers, older children are God's children as much as infants are. You know, I think, I think what people would probably say is that there's a risk with older kids, but I mean, you've obviously um, not only lived a very successful life, but um an inspiring life. What do you think has made the difference that made a difference in your life that you could impart to these kids? Well, I would say that like I was a risk, right? Like I was a risk, but I am the way I am. I am who I am now because there were people that came into my life and said, we're going to take the risk. Like we're going to love her anyway. I had a track coach who came into my life uh, my sophomore year of high school. And then between my junior and senior year, he was like, Tori, I think that you can go into the state track meet and you can win it. And there were a lot of people that were like, she's going to be a statistic. They were speaking such hurtful things over me. And he was one of the first person people who ever gave me like a a very tangible goal. And I was like, okay, we're just going to try for it. Like, I don't really have anything else I'm going for. I don't have anything else to lose. And he took me in and he became my father figure. He's the man that I call dad today, walked me down the aisle at my wedding to my kids call grandpa. And I became a four-time state champion in track and field. That's what allowed me to go to college. And you were right when you said earlier, only 3% of youth who have experienced foster care go to graduate with a bachelor's degree. And, but it was because there were people in my life and there were there, that was my track coach. There were a lot. It was a, it was a whole community though. Like it, it really does take a village. And it were these people that were like, we're going to take the risk, even though people are telling us to wash our hands of this girl, even though people are telling us that this girl is trouble. And so I would encourage people uh, to take the risk. And I'd also encourage youth in foster care that those things that are spoken over you about being a statistic, those stereotypes that you feel like plague you and that you have to carry that are such a heavy weight. Like that's just not who God says you are. God says that you are a child of his. And when people kick you out of their homes, when people don't want you, God says, I've created a room for you in the kingdom of heaven. So I, I think what's so interesting about your message specifically. So I watched your TED talk and one of the things that you talk about in your TED talk is that you have a a file that kind of follows you as a foster kid. And this is, and it's, 
you described it as, you know, the worst things that have ever happened to you, the worst things that you've ever done, that's what follows you. And I have to imagine that that has, um, that's, that's a lot of weight on, on a kid, um, to go into a home and, um, either have to prove yourself against that file or, or to almost live into it. It's almost like an expectation of you to be, you know, who this file says you are, or, or you're trying to fight up against it and you're trying to prove maybe you're, you're over, you know, um, you know, expressing yourself in ways to try to prove that you're not that person. Is that a typical scenario for most foster kids is that they are, they are stuck behind what the system says that they are. Is that the primary thing that keeps them from breaking out? I do think that healing begins and ends with identity. And I think that, you know, youth in foster care, they need healing from the trauma that they have endured. I do believe that these statistics that this these files the stereotypes that are spoken over youth in foster care is a huge hindrance because they cannot see who they are created to be they can't see that they have gifts and talents and that those things can be used for their future and so when you're in the foster care system it's so discouraging when i was in the system i was very isolated because of the rules that revolved around my case there's an act now that's passed called the normalcy act that i think would have helped me but it, it says that youth in foster care can experience things that youth who do not live in foster care can experience like going to a football like a high school football game or going to a friend's house I couldn't do those things and so I felt very isolated very depressed I didn't have a lot of friends and so there just wasn't I I was a lifeguard for some time and then um, I had a foster mom who had me quit that job because she didn't want to drive me because I couldn't get my driver's license when you're in the foster care system and so there were all these things where I couldn't see that that there was going to be anything better. Like all of the things that I'm good at today, like I love people, I love being with them, I love hosting, and like I love working. Like all of those things that I am good at now um, were taken from me as a kid, like I couldn't do them. And so I think when we take these things away from kids, they can't see their future. And that's super discouraging. Um, We don't see that there's going to be life beyond the system. You know, I think a lot of people's view of God is is kind of connected to maybe their church or their parents. And if, if they have a negative relationship with their parents, they kind of place that view on God. And I have to imagine that these kids have been given a really rough hand, that it's, it's not always as easy as saying like, hey, um, I love you, you're worthwhile, you know, um, you can make something of your life seeing you now, it's hard for me to imagine, um, a different version of you. Cause you're so, um, giving just in your presence and the way that you present yourself. What do you think made the difference or, or either in, in, in relationship to God or in relationship to how you view yourself? What do you think made the difference in your life to kind of help you see yourself in, in a correct light? Yeah, I feel like there's so many different pieces to it. I will say, you know, growing up in foster care, moving from home to home was very hard, but it was also a gift in a way that I could, I got to live with people very intimately, a lot of very different people. And so like, you think of now on social media, we'll like see someone's opinion and we can just scroll past it and really not have a second thought about it, even if we do or don't agree with it. But when I was in the foster care system, I'm living with these different families very intimately and I'm getting to know them. And I think through that, I understood that people really do believe what they believe or conduct themselves the way they conduct themselves for good reason. And I think that that put a compassion or empathy in me and then seeing other kids come from really hard places and not being able to overcome them because they, you know, people are like, oh, pick yourself up from your bootstraps. So like, how do you do that if you were never given a pair of boots? And so I I think kind of really seeing that metaphorically in a lot of ways growing up, um, has created an empathy for me to, I, I want to be generous with what God has done in my life. I want to be giving with it because I feel like if I'm not, I'm really wasting the work that God has done, the testimony that he's given me. And then it doesn't allow for 
other youth who have grown up like me to come out of their circumstances. When I was in college, I, I did see other former foster youth who were successful doing some of the work that I, I do now. And I think that it is so inspiring to see other people who have went through what you've went through. It's like represent, people are like representation matters. And it does like in terms of skin color or the way that you speak, but it, it also really matters in terms of background. Because when we see that someone else has went through what we've went through and they've overcome, then we think, okay, maybe I can do that too. And then there's, of course, there's this faith aspect of God, I didn't want anything to do with him because I had a set of foster parents that proclaimed his name, but they abused their kids behind closed doors. And that was very, very confusing to me. I was being very drawn towards the heart of Jesus, like understanding that he was loving and compassionate. And he met this broken woman at the well. And I'm like, I'm the broken woman at the well. Like I want to be met by this loving person. And then like, the people that proclaimed him, though, were really hurting children that I cared for. I was, like, so confused. And so then I moved from that home because of that situation. I moved from that home to my 12th foster home, my last one. And the foster mom there, she was just so loving and so kind. And, like, everything that I'm saying about her, she would say about herself, not the loving and kind thing. She wouldn't say that, but the thing that I'm about to go into. She, like, hated fitness, hated eating healthy. I ran track. And so I was like, Gigi, we got to eat healthy. Like we got to, we got to like go exercise. And like, I had one-on-one practices with my track coach. Um, and like that, that she had to be there cause that like wasn't allowed. So she had to be present the whole time. And she would walk around the track for like hours and she would be like, I hate this, but I love you. And like, okay. She taught me this recipe. It's cream cheese. This is what you need to make this dip. It's the best dip. It's a stick of cream cheese, a stick of butter and a can of corn. Okay. That is the epitome of Gigi. <laughs> and I, I love her so much, but like, she, I, w- I would be like, Gigi, we can't eat this. Like we got to eat something different. And we would go to the grocery store and she would get me my healthy food. Cause I wanted to run track and I wanted to be good at it. And there are some people who are like, Oh, well, Tori, that's like normal. Like parents just do that. But other foster, there were no other foster parents that did that for me. So for me, that was a really big deal. And I really saw it as a means of sacrifice and as a means of love in her life. I was like, Oh, this is what Jesus love looks like. Like Jesus love doesn't, it's not always comfortable. It it loves people the way that they need to be loved, not in a way that is comfortable for for the giver. And so I think it's really people's lives too that loved me well, that makes me want to love people well. And because there's right there, I, I experienced these two. I'm not saying that my 11th foster home, that they weren't Christian, that they didn't love the Lord. But I do believe that there are two ways that we can walk out our faith. In one way, it really hurts people because it confuses them and it takes them away. It makes them step back from Jesus. And then there's another way in which we're consistent to his character and to what we're proclaiming. And that makes people curious. That makes people wonder, what do you have that I do not have? And how can I love like Jesus loves? In, in my life, some of the things that I've struggled with, you know, I, um, I struggled with pretty serious depression when I was in college and it, and it was a, it was a burden to me, but now it's still something I, I struggle with. I have a handle on it, but it has become something that has allowed me, um, to, to make something that helps others in, in the form of our app. But it, this thing that used to be this burden has become, the superpower, right? I wonder if you are looking backwards, almost thankful for the experience that you've had, given that you can now speak that into other people's lives. Yeah. Is that yeah. how you feel? Yes. That's exactly how I feel. Um, I love that you worded it that way. And I think that that's what 
like that's what God does, right? Like that's, and we see that in scripture of the, the worst things that have happened to people. God uses it for his glory and God uses it for good. Um, and I think as a kid, that was kind of the hope that I held on to. I remember being in a juvenile detention center. So that's like juvie kid jail. Um, I was like in a kid jail for 18 days. And the only thing that I could have in myself was the Bible. And I didn't like come to the Lord. I didn't want to live my life for him. But I remember like just reading it because there was nothing else to do. And being like, oh, like maybe like this, maybe sitting in a jail cell, maybe the worst things that have happened to me, maybe my abuse, like maybe it'll all turn out okay someday. Maybe it'll all be okay. And maybe actually it'll be, it'll be used for good. So I, I do think that that's, that's totally how I feel. Um, I, the, my story sharing it has also like, yeah, yeah, it's helping people. I get messages of people like, they're like, I'm going to get involved in foster care because of you. Or I've, I've gotten messages saying like, we're adopting our daughter because we started foster care two years ago because of you. And so, yes, God is using it for good. But what God has also done is he has healed me with it because in the foster care system, I was so, like not heard. I felt like I was very disregarded, not cared for. And now like for my entire career, like I'm heard, people listen to me and I get to have a voice and then I get to help other people have a voice in their own stories. So it's not even just like this superpower that's helping people, but it's also helping me. Do you still feel like you hold on to some of those things that you kind of picked up when you were a kid in terms of the, the self-worth? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. When I was like in the foster care system, all those negative labels that were placed on me, I, I always remember thinking like, I don't want them to think I'm a bad kid. I got to show them that I'm not a bad kid. That was my objective for like everything. I was a 4.0 student. I wanted to be valedictorian. My junior year, I got taken out of school for three weeks and placed in a group home because they couldn't find a home for me and my grades dropped then. But like, I wanted to be valedictorian so, so badly because my whole hope was to like be on stage and for parents to see that like, see, I, I'm not a bad kid. A valedictorian can't be a bad kid. Someone who gets a 4.0 can't be a bad kid, right? And there was so much motivation for me to do well in track because I just really wanted like people to be like, wow, she's actually good. Like she's good at things and that must mean she's a good kid. And even to this day, you know, there are relationships that are still broken. And when I, when I won state, when I went to college, graduated from college, there have always been a wave of people that have come back, whether it's foster parents, people who kicked me out, people who thought I was bad. People have always kind of came back and apologized or wanted to be a part of my life in some capacity. And that makes like, it does make me feel good. I'm like, see, you're saying like, you're, you you want to be in my life because you don't think I'm a bad person. <laughs> like you don't think I'm a bad kid. And so now as an adult, if I have an accomplishment or if I have something coming up, I'll be like, oh, I hope these people that maybe I still have broken relationships from my past, maybe they'll see this and they'll like come back and want to be a part of my life. I still have that today. And like, if those people don't come back, come back, or if like the thing that I did wasn't as successful as I wanted it to be, I have to be like, it's, it's okay. Like I have to talk myself down and tell myself that like, I'm, I'm not bad. How do you hold those ideas with, you know, social media and spending so much time online, like your story has kind of become your job. And that's a, that's a weird place to be. Cause that, you know, I, I would, I would throw myself in that camp too. There's a weird social validation thing that kind of comes from this type of work. How do you manage that? Yeah. Well, and there's also like a lot of mean people, like I'm sure yeah, yes. are, like really, really mean things that, um, come at me. And I think that in, in high school, I was kind of not very nice. I, and right. Cause hurt people, hurt people, but heal people, help heal people. And I was a hurt person. And so I remember one time I went to school and there was a girl who like dyed her hair and I went up to her and I was like, your hair is ugly. <laughs> and like, and for me, I was like, people would be like, Corey, that's so nice. I'm like, but it's the truth, you know? And like, but it wasn't mean. Yeah. Truth teller. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. truth teller, you know, I do my little bobblehead and my little point finger. And it was like, not nice, not nice. And I realized though, that that was a reflection of me. Like that said a lot more about me than it did the girl who died. It didn't say anything about the girl who died her hair. It just said that I was mean and hateful and hurting. And so the things that come across to me that are like mean, 
hateful. Um, I just, I'm like, yeah, that says a lot more about that person uh, who's being mean than it does me. And I think, you know, in terms of the social validation and the likes, I don't know if I, um, I don't, I don't think that I know that answer. I think that uh, it's a hard answer because part of it is like literally physiological. Like we know that now that like when a post does well, or like when social media is dinging that like literally our brains are like dopamine, I'm so happy. And so I don't know if I, I know the answer to that. I don't know if I've like balanced it well. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm doing it right. And I wouldn't want to steer anyone else the wrong way. I'm just doing it and hoping that it goes well. But I, I will say maybe one thing I'll say. I don't have expectations. Like when I post, I'm not like, this is going to get 5,000 likes or like, this is going to get this many views. Like, I'm just like, I hope that this works, you know? And I think that once you do social media for so long, like that's just kind of your mindset. Like hope this message gets out. Cause like you're, you're against an algorithm and there's only so much you can control. And so I just put the message out there and I pray over my work regularly. I don't like pray over every post. Like I'm not like you Taylor. I ain't got a whole prayer app and stuff, but like I, <laughs> I pray over my work, um, often and I just hope that it gets into the hands of the people that are meant to receive it. Uh, one, of the, one of the stories that I hold on to, and this is like not social media, but it encourages me in all of my work. My very first speaking engagement, I was speaking to a group home, like first speaking engagement. I'm, get, I'm on stage and I, I have to sit down because I'm like so nervous and I'm like shaking. Like my, you can visibly see my hand shaking and like the audience is far off. And I don't even know what I said. Like have no idea. I got off the stage. I started crying. Like I just said yes because they asked me and I was like, I don't want to waste the good that God has done in my life. So I'm just going to say yes. And then like three months later, a kid told me that he came to the Lord because of it. And I was just like, did I even talk about God? Like, so I am encouraged by things like that because I see that God splits your message. It, like the message that we want to put out there, God will split it a hundred ways. He will bless it if our heart's intent is good. And um, he will do like what I don't even, like, I don't even know what he's going to do with it. He can do what I cannot do. Mm. No, I agree with all that. It's, um, that's been the biggest thing is just being able to like let go. And, um, I find that when I let go of the things that I want, I get better things than I could have imagined, which is odd, you know? Hey, or, yes. I literally, that is like one of the big points of my book because I, I prayed, like prayed growing up for a dad. Like I was like, God, just give me a dad. Like, because if I, if I had a dad, I wouldn't go into the foster care system. And if I had a dad, then I wouldn't be searching for all these guys' validation. Like, just, I always thought, like, a dad would just solve all my problems. And then when I came to the Lord, I was like, oh, like, you're my dad. Like, you're my father. Like, you're the father that I've been yearning for. You have protected me. You have loved me better than any er earthly father could have. And I just let go of like, I'm like, I don't even need a father. Like, you're my father. And I'm so content. And I found so much joy in that because, you know, there was so much brokenness and abuse that came from parental figures. And now I'm realizing like, oh, I have a parental figure that has healed all of that, that has come over all of that. And he did not cause that. Um, the fall has caused that, but he can heal that. There was so much peace in that. And I just let go. And then literally months later, God gifted me with my track coach, who is my father till this day. Um, and it's like so many times in my life when I'm just like, okay, God, like this is yours. I'm letting go of it. He gives me above and beyond what I could have even imagined. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. Um, just taking a step back, something that you kind of mentioned there is, is abuse a big part of the foster care system? Is that a typical experience for most kids? You know, I, I honestly think it is. I, it, that's really sad, but 
Yeah, I think it is. I actually went to go speak at a group home um, a few weeks ago. And like, there's a lot of um, negative connotation around congregate care group homes um, because people believe that kids need to be in family settings, which I think is true. Like God created the family, kids need to be in family settings. But there are also residential treatment facilities that are, um, you know, that are for acute clinical needs. They're very much needed. And I lived in a group home and it helped me uh, very much through the mandatory counseling that I had to attend. But I was speaking at this group home and then I was um, speaking to the, the kids that I was um, talking to more like one-on-one -on -one after the event. And there was a kid that came up to me and he was like, do you ever, did you ever not want to leave like your group home? And I was like, no, I, I always wanted to be in a family. Why don't you want to leave your group home? Like, why, why wouldn't you want to leave here? And he said, well, the family that I'm going to, he was adopted by a foster family. And he was saying that like the family is very abusive. And he was like, this is like the safest place I've ever been. And it just really took me back because it's like we put these like huge labels over congregate care and we're like, it's bad. It's abusive. But like it, he literally said, this is the safest place I've ever been. And like, I don't want to leave. And then we put like this good connotation on foster families where like that's where he was being abused. And so I don't want to say that there's like a big blanket statement on either. I just think that I think that in both like there are there's abuse and in both there are safe places is is a group home um kind of like an orphanage for foster kids is it yes i say that like you know what i say is that you know america says we don't have orphanages because we just like want to take pride in ourselves but we do we just call them group homes and they're not as big like the the law the laws that we have around group homes make them so that they can't be like orphanages in developing countries where it's like a hundred kids in one place um you know the the group home that i was at they had 10 kids to one home that was the maximum that that they would take but yeah it's like an orphanage in the way that it's not parents it's a rotating staff um, and you know, they, they don't eat like around the dinner table. They eat, they go to like eat in a cafeteria. So it, it's more like an institution than it is a family home. Has it been your experience that kids in foster care, when they get out, they have a lot of disconnection? Cause I imagine that's a very disconnecting, um, experience to, I don't know. It just feels institutional, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, there's a, a very common diagnosis for youth in foster care called, uh, people call it RADS, or it stands for uh, Reactive Attachment Disorder. And it's when kids develop it when they are very neglected. Um, and they, because they're very neglected, they form unhealthy attachment styles. And so, yeah, it, it's common. Um, and it, it, it is really sad because when you are a youth in foster care. And when I was in foster care, you know, you move from home to home and you like leave without saying goodbye. And then you just have to instantly like form a relationship with the next person. And it's so, it's so forced. It doesn't create like these, these just natural ways, right? Where like, if you meet someone in a coffee shop or you meet someone at school or, like anywhere, you know, the relationship develops over time. You don't like to start living with someone very intimately. And because, you know, we do it so abruptly, then there's like a pullback and you don't know if you can, you, can you ever draw in after that pullback because it's so abrupt on top of like being ripped out again and again and again. How do you help kids that have an unhealthy attachment? I think that's something that kind of people are coming more familiar with now, you know? So I, I imagine that there's a lot of like, a lack of attachment or a fear of attachment or, or a hyper connection immediately. How do you try to establish some sort of healthy connection with the kids that you're, you're a foster mom now? How do you manage that? I say that we have to contradict the trauma. So what I mean by that is say I have had all these negative things spoken over me. I have been physically abused. We have to show youth that, you know, something can break in the house. Um, they can do something bad. They can get in a car accident. They can sneak out. 
and we are not going to speak negatively over them or it's not going to result in physical abuse. So that's contradicting the experiences that they've had. And then through time, what they learn is that like, oh, not every person is going to abuse me or not every person is untrustworthy. Not every person is going to hurt me. And then when they have built that trust, and it takes a long time, like it took a long time with me and my track coach, like me and my track coach, it sounds like this Cinderella story. But when I moved into his home, like I was such a butthead, like I was not very nice. I always told him that he was like kicking me out and that I was going to leave, even though he like never kicked me out. And I would like, like, go away for a whole day and be like, I n- I'm never coming home, right? Because I didn't believe that we could have arguments, that we could have disagreements, and he not kick me out, even though that's something like he never did. And so I think over time, what I realized, I was like, oh, like, he's not going to kick me out. Like, no matter what I do, he is always going to love me. And it's so funny. Now, we like never have an argument about that, like, because I don't have the fear. It was like this fight or flight reaction in me that if we had a disagreement, I was leaving, like I had to leave. But now I know like if we have a disagreement or if we have an argument, we're going to hug and we're just going to keep moving on. It's almost like you have a, a master's degree in like learning how to like properly love people. That's what it, that's what it strikes me as. Oh my gosh, like, that's so nice. Yeah. I, I say people are like, what people have asked me, like, what's your goal with your book? And people have asked me, like, what's your goal with your life? And I say to be a professional lover of people. Like, that is my heart. I want to do that and I want to teach other people to do that. And I, Taylor, like, I have to apologize a lot. Let me tell like, I sound, you're like, oh, you have like this degree. But the other day, um, so we have a in our yard. We live right in the middle of our town. There's a tree in our yard and it is like scraping at our gutters. Okay. But the city won't cut us down because it's not our tree, but it's in our yard. Like the trees in our yard. We own the house, but they're like, no, it's not your tree. It's the city's tree. So it's like ruining our gutters. And I'm like calling them. I'm like, Hey, can you like come cut down the tree? Like what's, what's happening? What's popping? And the lady is like telling me that it's on, it, it has to be voted for to cut. Like it's, it's a whole thing. And I'm like, I know, I already know this, but there's like damage on my house. So what should I do about the damage? And she's like, well, it's being voted. She's like repeating herself about it being voted for. I'm like, no, but the damage. And then I like, I yelled at her. I like, I was like, no, you are not listening to me. I'm like, stop talking. Just take a pause and listen to me. And like, I did not talk to her kindly. And like, so yes, I want to be a professional lover of people, but I'm not, I'm still working on it. And I actually had to call her back. I called her back and I was like, I just wanted to say that I'm really sorry for yelling at you. I see that's, that's better than I would have done. See, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have even called back. (laughs) There's there's circumstances where you have to, you have to get loud. (laughs) I felt so bad. I felt so bad yelled at her and I did try and call her back the other day and I can tell she's like oh it's that stupid girl that yelled at me like she wants nothing to do with me but now I'm like I'm gonna kill you with kindness (laughs) that's so funny has has dealing with all of this and, and learning how to really approach people where do you feel that the church goes wrong not necessarily with foster kids but with just loving others because I there there's a it's hard to to love people and and kind of um not impose your will on them you know i think that's a common thing for people is that they want to love people the way that they want to love people yes yeah like love love says like i have an agenda for me but i don't have an agenda for you and i think it's really hard like even me i i I have relationships in my life where I have expected those relationships to like heal the relationships of my parents or the relationships that were broken in foster care. Like in my adult life, I've like, think I've put weight on people to be like people that they're not. And like, right. If I like real love is me just loving them for who they are with what they bring and not having these like weighty expectations. And so I want to say that that's legit. It's like a really hard thing to do, but I was reading James the other day. Um, and at the end of James one, that's the scripture on, caring for the orphan and the widow. And then that's literally the last verse. And then it ends and goes to the second chapter of James. And so it's like, 
okay, you're calling us to this, but you don't even give us any instruction. Like it just ends right there. But I, I majored in Christian studies when I was in college and I so wish I would have taken my education more seriously because I did not know I was going to be doing everything that I was doing now. I'm like, I'm just going to be a mom and a wife and I'm really happy about that. And I'm like, a professional communicator about Jesus things. And I'm like, ugh. okay. Anyway, the one thing, the one thing that I took away was to, to take out the breaks, the titles the of uh, put in scripture, because those chapters in those titles were put in by the modern man. They weren't put in by the author. And so it, it has seriously radically changed the way that I view scripture, interpret scripture and read it. And so I took that out. I took the two out and said, if I just kept reading, would James, does James keep giving us instruction here? And he does. So he, he says, care for the orphan and the widow. And then he calls us to not choose favoritism. He says that favoritism is actually sinful. And he goes on to explain it, saying that if a rich man comes to you and a poor man comes to you, do not put the poor man at your feet. Put him at the place that you would put the rich man. And so I think what we're called to in loving people is if a rich man would come into our home or come into our presence, right? Like we would give him the time. We would not hesitate. If there was someone that could invest in your app or if there was someone that could donate to my nonprofit, like we would give them the time. Like we, if they wanted to come into our house and stay the night, we would give them the best bed. We would cook them good food. We would make sure that they were taken good care of. And so I think that that's what scripture is calling us to when it calls us to love people is to create an equal space for those that do not have what we have, that do not have as much um, to create an equal space for them. How, how do you make sense of your past experiences, n negative ones, um, holding that worldview in your mind, holding that call to love people? How do you make sense of um, maybe abusive people? How, what would you say to somebody that has been through those things, maybe through no fault of their own, whether it's foster care, maybe it's um, cancer? You know, how do you... What, thinking about what you've been through and now where you're at, what would you say to those people that are in the midst of it? Yeah. Well, I think that a lot of people do not want to hear what I have to say. Um, but I, I like to look at Job. I think that, you know, God, God said that the enemy could cause the suffering upon Job, knowing that Job would remain faithful and that God would be greatly glorified. And then that generations, like to me, I know the story of Job. I pray that people know the story of Tori and that it inspires those people the way that Job inspires me to continue to endure suffering for the glory of God. And so that other people can hold on in the midst of the most pain they've ever been in. Have you seen with the foster kids that you advocate for that even without telling them about your religion or, or your worldview, that the way that you love them kind of leads them in that direction anyway? Is that, is that been the primary mode of sharing with others is just loving on them? Yeah, that is the primary motive. Um, you know, there, we are very close um, with someone who lives very differently than us. Um, and we have had people live in our home that live very differently than us, um, that they have, that they're atheists and they think that we're crazy, but, and, and yeah, we don't agree with the way that they live, but we believe that if we love hard enough that they will see God's love in us because it's not us that's going to change them. I cannot change people, but I do believe that the Holy Spirit can change people. And so when it comes to, you know, people are like, well, these people need to know the truth or these people, you know, they need to know the gospel. They, you, you know, we need to preach to them. I do hope that it's not just my words. I really want it to be my life that makes people curious, just like 
just like people foster, my foster mom did with me. She made me curious about God and I asked, what do you have that I don't have? And then I wanted it. And so I hope that that's what my life does. I hope that it's not just my words, my preaching, my speaking. I hope that it is my life that just draws people towards God because I don't believe that I can change people, but I do believe that God can. Have you been struggling with the the pull of this book and and being present in your house? I'm you're kind of on the cusp of of uh, a lot of of lot of notoriety here. I, the the book has a lot of buzz. Um, have you been struggling with the weight of that managing with your family? Well, Taylor, I only canceled on you three times, so you yeah. know that I am struggling. <laughs> yeah, I am struggling trying to balance uh, my motherhood and my wifehood, and I have my sister who lives with me full-time, so my sisterhood, and me, my sister and I, we were separated from each other. I said that, and we were separated from each other until, like, the past year, and so now she lives full time. And so like, I want to invest in that relationship as well. And I have littles and you always hear when you're a mom that they're only little ones. And then you're like terrified if you're a working mom. So yes, it is. Um, it is such a pull and I don't say that I balance it well. I say it's like a tightrope and I'm just walking it. And I think that I fall off a lot, but I just get back on and keep trying to walk it out in a way that, um, you know, glorifies God, because I, I do think about a lot. I think everyone's seen it in ministry where you see, have a powerful minister who has, um, changed lives, but their kids don't know the Lord or they don't have a good relationship with their children. And so I just take that very seriously. And I try to balance it really well. And I, my son is only three. So like, he doesn't understand everything I say, but I always tell him, you know, you are first. And if you're ever not first, I hope you tell me so that I can correct myself. And I, I like, he's three, he doesn't know what I'm saying, but I hope that he'll, he'll look back like I look back on the things that parents did for me, I hope that he'll be able to look back and say, my mom said that to me from the very beginning. Um, and she gave me the opportunity to speak up so that I could be first in that. So I could, that he could be my first ministry. How do you ground yourself in, in your mission and your purpose? How do you stay plugged into that? I know it's so cliche like it's what every every like person in ministry says, but it's really because it's true. It's just staying in the word. Um, anything that comes out of me that is good is literally because I stay plugged into reading my Bible um, regularly. And when I don't, like I literally get insecure because I'm like, what could come out of me? Because what we put into ourselves is what we put out. It's just what we put out is just an overflow of our hearts. And so I do take being in scripture very seriously because I, when you're a communicator, I think that you have to. This is a, a big right turn here. How did you get into the Miss Universe pageant stuff? That seems, uh, it's so different <laughs> than the rest of your life. It is different. I don't know what I was doing. Um, you were good at it, apparently. Oh, my gosh. It's just, I think, it's just the story. It, it, it is the story that draws people in. I think it's 60% of the score was interview. And so I got to share my story. And I know when they saw me walking on stage, they thought that I was like a giraffe on stilts. Like, <laughs> I did not know. I was like, it was bad. And I even had a coach, and I, like, still didn't. You're supposed to walk a certain way. And my dress didn't even fit because I borrowed it because I couldn't afford, like, an actual pageant dress. So it is. it was different. My husband and I were fostering a sibling group of three at the time. We have two children. We also have two biological children. We're in the process of adopting our adult son. And people are like, wow, that's amazing. I was like, no, it was the stupidest thing I've ever done. It was such a bad idea. We didn't have the capacity for it. We failed the, that sibling group of three for sure. Like, it was really hard. And I was just like, I was in my mom bun every day, mom sweatpants. And I was just like, I, I was like dying. We, oh, okay. So by the way, the, the kids, it was five kids, three and under. And so we were like changing diapers every two seconds. I mean, it was just 
It was bad. It was all bad. Anyway, um, don't do that, anybody. Anyway, the opportunity of pageantry came on the table, and I was like, that sounds fun. Like, that's literally what I was like, that sounds really different than what I'm doing now. Let's maybe do that. And so I signed up for it and I competed and I got a coach and, um, apparently I won the pageant, which was great and cool. Um, it was really fun. And it was also a season where I was, I was listening to this podcast and the guy talked about how he had always worked for God. Like he was working for God and he felt like God had called him to enjoy him. And I was just like, I was very challenged. I was like, I don't know if I know how to enjoy God. Like my whole thing has been like live life for the glory of God, like love people well so that they know God. And I was like, I don't know if I really know how to enjoy him. And it was just a time where I was like feeling very burnt out. So I was like, okay, God, how do I enjoy you? And when the opportunity of pageantry kind of came on the scene, I was like, that honestly sounds fun. Like, I think maybe I could enjoy God in this. And I did like, it was really fun. And I'm not like, I don't look cute, cute now, but I also think that it taught me it was, I, th these are the things that I think God does that we cannot even like put in a box. I was starting to, so I started speaking, communicating before Mrs. Universe. And I feel like in this pageant world, God helped me figure out, um, like, I didn't know how to really do my makeup, didn't know how to do my hair, and I didn't know how to dress. Like, and I, I know that sounds so silly, but as I've come into the sphere of communicating, it actually is important. How, how do you define enjoying God now? I think I'm still trying to figure that out. I do think that I have a tendency, like, I'm like, I will rest in heaven. Like I am working for, I'm living life for the glory of God. Like I want to live on this earth. Like, like I only got one life and he has given me so much to whom much is given, much is required. Like I just want to live for the Lord. And I, I know though that that can cause burnout so quickly. And there have been pieces like times in my life where I'm just like, I don't know if I can go on any longer because I've run myself into the ground. And so I think enjoying God, it's right now, it's being with my family. Um, it's going on nature walks with my kids and discovering different plants through this app that we use that tells us what plants they are. Um, it's taking the time to read to my children and probably drinking wine with my husband um, at night watching our favorite television shows and talking about our favorite books. Well, Tori, thank you for, uh, coming on the podcast. I appreciate you. Um, everybody should go check out her Ted talk is called supporting foster youth and her new book is fostered one woman's powerful story of finding faith and family through foster care. I'm very excited about it. Um, it just came out, but you can get it. We're going to link to it on Amazon below on uh, the show notes for this episode. Thank you. Thanks, Tori. And as always, if you want to support this podcast, you can subscribe here or you can check us out on YouTube or Spotify. Or if you want to monetarily support us, you can go and download our mobile app, Hope Mindfulness and Prayer, which is available in the Google and Apple app stores. You should go get it. It's awesome.